The first reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will break fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is taken from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is who he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, we're getting well into the season of Advent now, but in the more traditional uh, church, the Advent season used to be seen looking forward to two things. Yes, the, the birth of Christ, and hence Christmas, but perhaps more importantly, it was looking forward to Christ's second coming. And it's the only time in the church's calendar where, where we do that. And today we're going to sort of think about that. What does Christ's second coming, or the hope, the promise of that, mean for us now? Because what we're told in the Bible is that when Christ comes again, he's going to bring with him a new heaven and a new earth. And that's a fantastic hope if you just stop for a moment and think about it. Christ coming and bringing a new earth. And here we come against the buffer stops for a big problem that the church has taught recently. Because in popular sort of Christianity, it's all about being converted, keeping my nose clean, and then escaping to heaven when I die. So there's a bit of a mismatch here. Because in that view, Jesus' death is just seen simply as a way for me to get to heaven. Whereas the Bible teaches that it's more about the Messiah coming to bring in God's kingdom on earth now. About giving humanity, i.e. Christ's followers, a new vocation to do. To be co-laboring with God, helping to bring in that kingdom. But anyway, more about that later. Today's two passages both look forward. Isaiah, uh, if you look at it, was kind of quite a sort of puzzling passage, but he was looking forward to a Messiah coming and a new age when old enmities would be vanquished that the mighty would live peacefully with the weak. You know, you've got the sort of cow and the lion all living together and so forth. The vulnerable would be safe. And the earth would be filled with people who know the Lord. And exploiters of the poor would change their habits. Idealistic, but very practical. And John the Baptist, in the reading from Matthew, was looking forward to Christ's first coming, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. And, of course, when John went out into the desert, Jesus was already in the wings, ready to come on stage, as it were. So John was looking forward to Jesus' earthly ministry. 
And of course, as I've said, Jesus came to inaugurate God's kingdom. And that kingdom will be fulfilled when Jesus comes for the second time and bringing with it the new earth and the new heaven. So the big Christian hope is not so much that I go to heaven when I die, but that one day I will live in this new heaven and earth. And we can't have a hope as big as that without it affecting the way we live now. Now this is where it starts to get a bit difficult because the church has been waiting for Christ's return for roughly 2,000 years. But as Peter explained, God's time is very different to our time. Peter says that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, if you do a little bit of arithmetic around that, if we've been waiting 2,000 years, that could mean that for the Lord it feels like two million years, or it could mean that it feels just like two days. Now, if you can work that out, great. But you see, time that we sort of peg so much on suddenly becomes irrelevant with God. And the reason Peter says this is that God's being patient with humanity because he wants more and more people to come and be part of this new kingdom, this heaven on earth. Just to help sort of put it in perspective, imagine the, this top end of the church, well, perhaps up here, is heaven. And, you know, we're all down here in earth. And as I said, popular Christianity is saying that, come on, guys, we want all you sort of shuffled in up there. But what the Bible's actually teaching is that heaven's going to come down and be amongst us. So if we're all up there, um, we're not kind of quite going to be where God is. In other words, heaven and earth are going to become one place. And that's such a big thing that it's got to affect how we are now. If we proclaim that as a truth, as an expectation that we believe in our head and our heart, then it's got to affect the way we live. We're told that this new heaven and new earth, i.e. Jesus' return, will come unexpectedly. And Jesus talks about this himself, doesn't he? Like a, a thief in the night sort of thing. And we need to prepare for it. And there's two things that we need to bear in mind as we wait for this new heaven and earth to come. One is the sort of people we should be now because we have such a hope and one day there will be this new heaven and earth. And second, as Peter explains, God wants every single person that's born on this planet to be part of that new heaven and earth. And you sometimes wonder, with two billion Christians, a third of the world's population, that somehow the world should be better than it is. And it's not, so there's something wrong with what we're doing. 
There's something wrong with our expectations, our hope, with our vocation. Well, it wasn't much different when John the Baptist went out into the wilderness. He was going to speak and preach and baptise people who were Jews, who had been brought up in a Jewish faith, God's chosen people, living in the, the promised land, admittedly under oppression. But it wasn't like he was talking to people that knew nothing about God. And he began to spread the word that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah was about to arrive. That he was, Jesus was on his way and they needed to get ready to receive him. And the way they needed to get ready was to repent of their sins and be baptised as a sign that they had repented. In other words, they had to turn away from all that pulled them away from God Imagine God being the wooden cross there, all that sort of pulled them away and turned round and come back and go towards him again. Because the kingdom of heaven was near. That's what we're told in Matthew's gospel. So turn from sin and idolatry, worshipping things that are not of God, back to God and have a right relationship with him. However, if you read again between the lines, of what um, John was saying is that just having a right relationship with God is not enough. Because if we do have a right relationship with God, then there's going to show in our lives some sort of fruit which bear from that relationship. Because, if you like, we have entered into eternal life under God's Rain. Therefore, at that level, we're called to conform to God's will. Now, note how John treated the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which you know all about. These learned men who spent their lives expounding scripture and writing laws about how to do this so they didn't break this rule and that rule, the very ones that should have been most excited about the Jewish Messiah coming. And what did John say to them? Bear in mind that Jesus was coming to defeat evil and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. John's message wasn't soft. This was big, earth-shattering stuff. There was no time to be soft and whimsical, it was hard and cold fact. He denounced the Pharisees and the Sadducees and said they were like poisonous snakes trying to escape a coming bushfire. I mean, we've got fires in Sydney at the moment and you can imagine as those fires spread the wildlife trying to run away and escape. That's how John portrayed the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's why they're called Sadducee. 
And he challenged them not to just go through the motions of their religion, through their faith, but to live it out, to bear the fruit of it. But the big irony is, of course, that the Pharisees, their philosophy was that the pure the more pure they could get the people of Israel to be, then the, Isa, um, the Messiah would come. So you've got this thing where John is saying, kind of, you're going through the motions and you're not bearing the fruit. And they thought they were doing everything to bring the Messiah in. And they were good, pious people, reading the Bible, following the Ten Commandments and everything else, and all sorts. But they were also very, very proud of their faith. And they looked down on those who didn't seem to be as austere and ascetic as they were. And proud is one of the biggest, or pride is one of the biggest sins. They were confident that they were ancestors of Abraham, And John said, well, that confidence, frankly, is misplaced. God can take a couple of stones and make them descendants of Abraham. So that's a waste of time, quoting that. And this is the hard punch. He says, the axe is ready to sever the roots of any tree that does not bear good fruit. I mean, you imagine that. Suppose every church on the island, to take a sort of up-to-date analogy, every Christian church on the island was seen as an apple tree. And the sort of chief gardener comes round carrying an axe and, and he looks at the fruit, comes around in you know, September, October time, and the trees that bear fruit are bearing fruit and the trees that aren't, aren't. And he chops them down. It's, we try to make things grey and wishy-washy, but they are more black and white. And you can see that, you know, John the Baptist was a hard-nosed character. And in the end, it wasn't people's feelings that counted. It was getting them ready to receive Christ. And if somehow they had to be hurt in the process... It's like, you know, having an operation in hospital. If you have to go through the pain of that in order to be well, then you have to go through the pain. But if you pussyfoot and say, well, no pain, then no gain. You see, God is not like the giant Father Christmas that some people make him out to be. He's not an anything kind of goes, kind of God. The wheat and the chaff will be separated. Christians are called to live godly and holy lives. And these kind of words just roll off our tongues. But when we sort of start to scratch beneath the surface, a holy life This is nice and simple. A holy life 
is one that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Notice the two holies there. We can't be holy without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And the Holy Spirit helps us to become more like Christ, which we uh, refer to in the Bible as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. He empowers us and the, and the church to proclaim the gospel, as Jesus said just before he ascended um, to the disciples, you know, wait until you get the Holy Spirit, then be my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to build up the community of faith so that we become stronger and closer to God and prepared to then go out as bishop. Uh, David Pitchers used to say, the church is the training place for the marketplace. You come here to be fed and encouraged and built up for the rest of the 166 hours in the week that you're not at church. A godly life means obedience to God and, and it's a big and, personal devotion to him. And our pattern for that is Jesus. So how do we prepare for this new, this new earth, this new heaven and new earth? Now let your imaginations come into play. Think of the world, your particular world, as you know it and experience it. And then imagine what it could be like if there was no pain, if there was no death. If everybody loved each other as Jesus asked us to do, or commanded us to do. In fact, if everybody behaved as Jesus would behave in whatever situations they find themselves. In other words, imagine the world that God wanted it to be. Imagine what it would be like to live in such a world. And then go out and try to spend the rest of your life living on earth as it is in heaven. As Paul puts it, living as if you're a citizen of this world and you're in this alien place at the moment. But you're there to represent the other world, not the one you live in. And all of this can be summed up to devoting our lives to become more and more like Christ. Christ, Jesus, is our theology. And there are four things we can follow up, and all four are important. Obviously, there's our character to, be called, to become more Christ-like. And the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians talks about that. Love, patience, kindness, and all that sort of stuff. Secondly, when we look at Jesus, he had this really, really, really close relationship with his father. 
I'm only going to do what I see the Father doing. I spend time with him. Um, the disciples so impressed teach us how to pray. So there's all that kind of relational stuff, worship, and so on. Which Jesus, I guess, summed up in the first commandment. Love God with everything you've got. And then the next one is moving out, I suppose, from the sign of the cross, if that's the vertical bit, then the horizontal bit, is moving out and loving your neighbour as yourself. Remember what Peter said, that God wants every single person you see to be part of this new kingdom, this new heaven on earth, this new place when heaven and earth become one. And God has created that person in his image. It may be tarnished now, but somehow with their source and with the hope, every person's significant. Love your neighbour as yourself. And then the fourth one is to proclaim God's kingdom by living now on earth as you can best imagine it to be in heaven. Church, we have to stand above the crowd. We have to be different. In the olden days, in the Middle Ages, then the churches were always the biggest buildings in town and had a big spire pointing heavenwards. We need to do that metaphorically now. We need to stand out from the crowd. And if church, any church, is boring and irrelevant, then I think at root it's because it's not a church of Christ. So, over to you. Amen.